Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham, and welcome to Episode 5 of Digging Deeper. This is a brand new weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. Later in this episode, I want to investigate what the Bible teaches about Christians and war and attempt to answer the question, is it ever right to fight? But first, I was recently asked about Jesus fulfilling the law. The questioner inquired, so the Sabbath and such don't need to be followed now. May I ask, does that mean the Ten Commandments don't need to be followed either? Let's find out. As we go through this, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus did three things with the Hebrew scriptures. He either uh, changed them or ceased them or he continued them. And so I'll give you some examples of each of those. And so let's have a look at changed, first of all. Um, The theologian C.S. Cowles, uh, who I really enjoy reading, he writes this, while Jesus affirmed the Hebrew scriptures as the authentic word of God, he did not endorse every word in them as God's. He rejected some of the Torah texts as representing the original intention and will of God, such as Moses' divorce laws, which uh, Jesus repudiates in Mark chapter 10. He displaced Moses' laws governing vengeance with his new ethic of active, nonviolent resistance of, as Jesus said, overcoming evil with good. And he talks about that in Matthew 5 and also Paul in Romans 12 and verse 21. His command to love your enemies in Matthew 5.44 represents a total repudiation of Moses' genocidal commands and stands in judgment on Joshua's campaign of ethnic cleansing. So uh, C.S. Cowles doesn't pull back. And we're going to read one of the examples of genocide a little bit later when I address the question of war and is it ever right to fight. So if you have a quick flip through, Matthew chapter 5 is very interesting. Jesus starts, this is the beginning of the summary of probably one of the longest sermons that Jesus gave. It was called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's sections in it where he talks about something, a command from the Hebrew scriptures or what Christians refer to as the Old Testament, and then he he changes it, he revises it, uh, he updates it for his time, okay? So if you look at verse 21, for example, Matthew 5, 21, he says, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to to judgment. So he changes it. He actually toughens it up uh, as he does for several others. So look at verse 27 as another example. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, Verse 31, talking about divorce here, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what Moses taught. Jesus, he disagreed, all right? He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, 
And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery too. And so on and on it goes. Um, and there are probably a couple of other areas in scripture which uh, permit divorce uh, as well. So uh, there's plenty I could say about that topic tonight. If you are divorced and or divorced and remarried, please don't hear any condemnation uh, in my words uh, toward you, okay? As a divorcee um, or as a person that's divorced and remarried, you are not a second-class Christian, and that's really important to understand the grace of God uh, that each and every one of us live in and, of course, we need so desperately. And so let me give you an example of the way Jesus changed uh, some of the teaching. So this is Exodus 21, 23 to 25. And so this is Moses giving law, giving instruction to the people of Israel. If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That's pretty brutal. But that's still enacted in some countries in the world, even here in 2021, right? And and so if there's serious injury, if someone kills one of your relatives, then you can go and kill that person. If someone damages one of your eyes, you can damage their eye, so on, through teeth, hands, feet, burns, wounds, bruises. It's brutal stuff. What does Jesus say about that? Well, he, he changes it. This is from Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So Jesus only quotes a little bit of that verse. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And so Jesus changes some things in the Hebrew scriptures. And so that's a number of really good examples of that. Other stuff he ceased. And there's a stack of examples here. Uh, we see a wonderful story in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, you will have read and heard about Jesus' transfiguration. Uh, it means to be changed, to um, to be transformed. And so when you read in Matthew 17, you see that his face shone, his clothes went bright white, and, and he was shining, right? And so the Greek word for transfiguration there, by the way, is metaphoro. And um, and that's the Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from, which, of course, is talking about a change from a caterpillar into a butterfly, something that crawls to something that flies. And so this metamorphosis happened for Jesus, and Peter and James and John were there. Now, if anyone's going to speak in any situation like that, it's going to be Peter, because the next thing that happens is that Moses and Elijah turn up as well. So I want you to picture this scene. They're on a very high mountain in Israel, probably Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel. Jesus is there. He starts to shine brightly. Uh, Moses turns up. Elijah turns up. And Peter goes, Jesus, would you like me to build three tents, one for each of you? You know, I love Peter. He probably didn't know what to say. He was completely overwhelmed by the experience, and he just blurted this out. And then God kind of just shuts him down. So the next thing we see or hear rather is the voice of God that says, this is my beloved son, hear him or listen to him. And then the experience ends and Peter, James and John, they're probably kind of prostrate, prostrate 
themselves. Anyway, they're lying flat in their faces and then they get up and the Bible says only Jesus was there. Now, this is this is fascinating because Moses and Elijah were there and it, it wasn't because they were anything extra special to anybody else. It's because of what they represented. So in the Hebrew scriptures, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so what we have represented here in Moses and Elijah is the Hebrew scriptures. It's what we refer to as the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And Jesus would often talk about the law and the prophets in the gospels. When he talks about that, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And so what we have here is Jesus representing the new covenant, Moses as the law, Elijah as the prophets, and then Moses and Elijah go. Just Jesus is there and the voice of God says, listen to him. And so Jesus is the one that we are to hear uh, above Moses and above Elijah, above the law and above the prophets is Jesus. And so uh, Jesus then ceased a number of things. Uh, Great verse in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. It says, the former regulation, talking about the Hebrew scriptures, is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Isn't that wonderful? So that was set aside. And so we see Jesus ceasing a number of things. Uh, my questioner mentioned the Sabbath. And that's that's spot on. If you have a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so hear him, listen to him. Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, talk about a similar thing. Mark chapter 2, verses 27, 28, Romans 14, verses 4 to 6, all talk about the Sabbath. Circumcision has ceased as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and and verse 6, have a look at this. For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so certain things uh, of Jesus, he, he has ceased them. Animal sacrifices have finished. And you're glad, you know, when you get to church on a Sunday morning, we, we don't have a big altar out the front with a table and a knife. We're not killing any animals and then splashing the blood over you to cleanse you of your sin for another year. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, read verses 1 to 18 when you have a few minutes on your own. Um, but just a, a few little snapshots from uh, Hebrews 10, uh, the first few verses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. He, Jesus, sets aside the first covenant to establish the second, the new covenant. When Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. 
First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't find ourselves trapped in a ritual whereby we have to keep going back and and having another sacrifice for the same sins. Uh, God says there that he, our sins and our lawless acts I will remember no more. You know, you can really take heart in in that truth. If you're anything like me, you know, you get certain regrets in life and you can rehearse on a regular basis. You go back and you think, oh, if only I hadn't done that or I wish I had done this but I didn't, you know, sins of omission, sins of commission, and, and we can get all tangled up with this stuff and brought back under condemnation. But God says to you, I don't remember. I choose not to remember your sin. And so these have been forgiven. And so a sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary, and that's great news. And so Jesus, through the death and resurrection that we're going to be celebrating this weekend uh, over Easter, has done away with animal sacrifices. The food laws have ceased under Jesus. Mark 7, verses 14 to 19, Jesus tells this little parable. Nothing outside a man can defile them by going into them, rather It is what comes out of a person that defiles them. He then goes back home. His disciples ask him about the parable. Jesus calls them dull because they don't get it. And he says to them, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach and then out of their body. And then Mark puts in brackets this little statement here for clarification for his readers, including us, And he says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Isn't that great? Jesus declared all foods clean. That's really good news. So all of the Old Testament food laws, you read in Leviticus, you know, all the things you weren't allowed to eat, those laws don't apply now. You can eat anything you want to, you know what I mean? Under the Old Testament, seafood, crustaceans like... um, prawns and lobsters and all of those sort of things, you weren't allowed to eat them. Now, I'm not overly keen on seafood anyway, so I don't eat prawns and lobsters, but I know people, including Christy, who absolutely love prawns and lobsters and stuff, and uh, you can enjoy those, you know. You can eat pork. Uh, I love bacon and ham and roast pork and all that kind of stuff. So you can eat all of those things. Why? Because Jesus has ceased Uh, those laws. The last thing uh, to say here is that certain things in the Hebrew scriptures that we read have been continued by Jesus. He he either didn't speak into them or through his practice or his teaching, he emphasized truth that we find in the Hebrew scriptures and just continued it under the new covenant. Worship is a wonderful example of that. The major revelation that we have in scripture about worship is in the Psalms. And the New Testament, Jesus quoted Psalms. We find Jesus and the disciples singing songs of praise to God. And it's mentioned in the New Testament. There's not a lot of revelation in the New Testament about worship because there doesn't need to be because there's already so much revelation in Psalms about uh, how we worship 
God. Uh, the law actually changed tithing, um, but then Jesus goes back to the pre-law um, teaching on tithing. And so tithing started about, I think it was about 400 years before the law. It was something that um, that was taught amongst the early people and uh, it seemed to be a principle whereby everyone would return to God the first 10% of all of their increase. The law then adopted tithing and actually introduced three tithes, one for God, one that was put aside for um, people going to the temple for worship, was kind of like a holiday fund, if you like, for for worshipping, and then every third one of those tithes was to be given to the poor. And so um, Jesus in Matthew 23, 23, he says to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites, he says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith or faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness, but don't forget to tithe is what Jesus is saying there. And so he continues the pre-law revelation on tithing for New Testament followers. Um, We find Jesus continuing God's responsibility uh, to help the poor and the marginalized, the teaching that we find all the way through the Hebrew scriptures as well as the New Testament, help the poor, help the marginalized. Um, uh, then the commandments. Now, my questioner said that uh, do we have to keep the Ten Commandments? Well, nine of the Ten Commandments are actually continued in the New Testament. And so the only one that is ceased really by New Testament revelation is the Sabbath teaching. And uh, it's still wrong to murder, it's still wrong to commit adultery, and so on and so forth. I love what the questioner says right at the end there. They say, I suppose that all the commandments can be summed up in Jesus' teaching, love one another as I have loved you. And uh, and you're absolutely spot on with that. Um, in fact, uh, Romans 13, Paul says the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. And then he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. Is it ever right to fight? Uh, It's the whole thing about Christians and war. Uh, Christians are often confused as to what their attitude and their response to war should be. And I think that happens because of confusion in Scripture. In fact, there appears very strongly uh, to be contradictions between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures Uh, when it comes to war, fighting, violence, and all of that kind of thing. I mentioned earlier uh, in our chat that, um, uh, in fact, a a comment or a quote by 
C.J. Cowles, if I just read that to you once again, he's a theologian. He said, while Jesus affirmed the Hebrew scriptures as the authentic word of God, he did not endorse every word in them as God's. He rejected some Torah texts as representing the original intention and will of God. We use Moses' divorce laws as an example. And then he displaced Moses' laws governing vengeance with his new ethic of active, nonviolent resistance of overcoming evil with good. His command to love your enemies in Matthew 5.44 represents a total repudiation of Moses' genocidal commands and stands in judgment on Joshua's campaign of ethnic cleansing. So there are, there are some doozies in the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've ever read through the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, you will have struck these passages where you just you feel like you're just shaking your head. And it's like, really, did God command that? And so one of them is Joshua chapter 10. And uh, have a read of verses 28 to 42 in your own time sometime. But let me just give you some highlights here. Um, verse 28 says that that day Joshua took Makeda, uh, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. He did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Uh, what did he do to the king of Jericho? Well, he hung him in a tree and left him there all day. Um, what a horrible way to die, okay? And then it goes on. Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand, the city and everyone in it. Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. We're talking about genocide. He did to its king as he'd done to the king of Jericho, hanging around in a tree all day. And Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Libna to Lashish. He took up positions against it, attacked it. The Lord gave Lashish into Israel's hands. Joshua took it. On the second day, the city and everyone he put to the sword, just as he had done in the previous cities. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Giza, had come up to help Lashish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. And on and on and on it goes. They captured him that same day and put it to sword, totally destroyed everyone in it, left no survivors, totally destroyed everyone. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They killed everybody in the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed. And then it says, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded, Joshua subdued them all the way around, all this in one campaign, conquered all of those people. Um, and then so we read that, you know, and I know people that have read that in the Hebrew scriptures and then just shook their head and go, I don't want to follow a God like this and then walked away rather than persisting because when you get into the New Testament, you actually find God's not like that. <laughs> okay. So New Testament, Hebrews 6, okay, verses 27 to 36, Jesus is saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat 
Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I mean, that's the golden rule, isn't it? Do to others what you would have them do to you. Is that what Joshua is doing? No, he's just killing them all. Would we want that done to us? No. Okay. And then so Jesus goes on. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High or children like God. This is what God is like, okay? He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And so then it says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And so what we start to see and hear in Jesus is what God is really like. Now, in the, I think it was around the second, third century, after Jesus, there actually rose up a, a teaching that there were two gods because people were looking at the Hebrew scriptures and then looking at the New Testament scriptures and going, hang on a sec here, this isn't even the same God. In the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, we've got this God who's he's vengeful, he's brutal, he commands his people to commit genocide, this is horrendous. And you get into the New Testament, and he's a God of love, mercy, and compassion. We like this God better than that one. And so there must be two gods, they said. Um, so what to do with this apparent contradiction between the two Testaments? Well, once again, I'll quote to you the theologian C.S. Cowles. He writes this, while Jesus affirmed the Hebrew Scriptures as the authentic word of God, he did not endorse every word in them as God's, Okay. And so that same quote that I read before, he commands, love your enemies, um, which is a total repudiation of Moses' genocidal commands and stands in judgment on Joshua's campaign of ethnic cleansing. And so you might ask the question, how then should we read the Hebrew scriptures? I'm so glad you asked because that's the question I'm going to get to next. And uh, then we'll get back into a little bit more about what do we do with war? Is it ever right for a Christian to fight? Um, I wear glasses, as you've probably noticed. I didn't need them until I was in my mid-40s. I had 20-20 vision and very proud of the fact. And then over the process of about a year or two, I, I, I realized I had to keep holding my books or my phone further and further away to be able to see it clearly. And eventually, I my arms weren't long enough anymore, and I finally got out of denial and into an optometrist, had an eye test, and yes, you guessed it, I needed glasses. You'll notice that glasses have two lenses, okay? If, if glasses didn't have two lenses, you still couldn't see properly. So if you just try, and if you wear glasses, try this sometime, and just look through one glass or one lens, and the other one's not looking through a lens, and then you can't see anything clearly, everything, whether it's near or far, is completely distorted and actually makes you feel quite weird and lightheaded. So it's the two lenses that we need to see clearly. And so when we're reading the Hebrew scriptures, we need two lenses to see clearly. We need the lens of the New Testament, and then we need a second lens, which is the lens of Jesus. 
So when we read the Hebrew Scriptures, you do so through the lens of the New Testament and the lens of Jesus. So you're reading the food rules in Leviticus. It's really, really interesting sometimes. Uh, and you're going, oh, my goodness, should I keep this, should I not? Well, I've got my New Testament lens on. i got my Jesus lens on. I realize Jesus has declared all foods clean. There's, there's um, everything can be uh, eaten with thanksgiving, said Paul to Timothy. And so we don't need to worry about that section. Same when it comes to the vengeance or the genocide passages. That is not what God is like, okay? So that is actually not God in action there, and I'll get to that a bit more in just a moment. John Wesley, the great revivalist and the guy who ended up really starting the Methodist movement and the Methodist churches, uh, an amazing man from several centuries ago, and he said this, as the full and final revelation of God, Jesus is the criterion for evaluating Scripture, the prism through which the Hebrew Scriptures must be read. I love that from John Wesley. The problem is that we still have people around today who are still reading the Bible with Old Testament lenses on. And that's happened throughout church history, of course. Um, church history is blighted because people lived with an Old Testament understanding of God rather than a New Testament revelation. And so Christians took up sword during the Crusades against the Muslims and the Jews and others who were considered infidels, unbelievers. Uh, Protestants and Catholics literally slaughtered each other during the so-called holy wars that tore Europe apart following the Reformation. And if you like reading history, um, it's a fascinating period of history to read about, but whoever was in power, if the Catholic king or queen were in power, uh, then the Protestants were killed and tortured and imprisoned. And if a Protestant king or queen was in power, then the Catholics would cop it. And these holy wars, which really should be called the unholy wars, um, perpetuated and, uh, and, and slaughtered uh, thousands and thousands of people. The Roman Catholic Church tortured, burned, drowned and flayed hundreds of thousands of supposed heretics and witches across more than five centuries of the Inquisition. Christian Europeans not only forcibly seized native lands, but also destroyed 80% of North and South America's native populations by genocide, disease, and drunkenness during the colonial era. And it was supposedly the most Christianized nation in Europe that systematically shot, gassed, and burned six million Jews as well as gypsies, gays, and disabled people in the Nazi Holocaust. It's this same problem of Christian people looking through the Old Testament lenses that has over the centuries justified things like slavery, the suppression of black people, the subjugation of women, the persecution of scientists, the banning of interracial marriage, and unkind treatment of minority groups, some of which we still see today in the church's attitude toward LGBTI people. And so getting this teaching right is vitally, vitally important. We've seen a classic example of this, folks, over the last year, really, during the global pandemic, uh, especially in the United States, some of the conspiracy theories that have been propagated that culminated, of course, in this false narrative of the American election being stolen by the Democrats, um, just, you know, fanning the flames with President Trump and um, other people uh, online, 
and uh, speaking out and obviously getting this group of several hundred people very, very fired up in the beginning part of January, uh, many of them who, when they uh, broke in to the the to to Congress, uh, they were crying out and calling out in the name of Jesus, um, which is horrendous. Some of the banners, I mean, just made me cringe. You know, it talked about God and and Jesus and everything. And so, some of these people were Christian people. They were followers of Jesus. How did they get so sucked into it? Well, they didn't have their lenses on. They are not reading Scripture with the lens of Jesus and the lens of the New Testament. And so for them, God is still angry and violent and vengeful, and so it was okay for them to act in that way. So really important that we get this right. If you want to read a book I'm reading at the moment, it's called A More Christ-Like God. It's by a guy called Bradley Jersak. J-E-R-S-A-K. I'm about halfway through this book at the moment, and uh, it's really, really good. Bradley really kind of nails um, this teaching of God being Christ-like. And so what is God like? The answer to that is look at Jesus, okay? And this is why it's so important when we read the Hebrew Scriptures because there are things attributed to God in the Hebrew scriptures that God was really not a part of, even though the scriptures say, you know, God told them to go and kill everybody, for example, the revelation that we see in Jesus is that's not what God is like. And so what is God like? We need to look at Jesus to find out what God is like. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we can't see God. But Jesus came, God in the flesh, so that we could see what God is really like. What's God like? We look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in the body that we call Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said himself in John 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What is God like? Well, look at Jesus. And so in the New Testament, God does not define Jesus. Rather, Jesus defines God. Jesus is the lens through whom a full, balanced, and undistorted view of God's loving heart and gracious purposes may be seen. What is new about the new covenant is that God is like Christ. As Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, says, to see what God is like, simply look at Jesus. And so no longer should Christians define God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As important as those people were in salvation history, God is now not defined in that way. The New Testament scriptures define God. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. This is the definition of God. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort. And so that's the revelation of God that we see in Jesus. We see that in Jesus, how Jesus treated his enemies. I mean, think of Judas, for example, a dear friend who was going to completely betray Jesus and do it with a kiss. And so what did Jesus do? Well, he loved him to the end. When Judas came, he, he Jesus called Judas friend. Uh, his love was expressed through gentle warnings by making him the guest of honour at the Last Supper. 
dipping his bread at the same time as Jesus in the wine and offering him, uh, first of all, a cup of forgiveness by greeting him in the garden, as I said before, uh, by the term friend. That's how Jesus treated his enemies, and that's his example to us, and that's what God is like. That's how God treats his enemies, uh, how Jesus treated sinners. One of my favourite stories in the New Testament is in John 8, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. I mean, there was so much hypocrisy going on there. But here was a bunch of guys stuck with an Old Testament view of God. So to them, God was vengeful and he was out to get people. And so they were out to get Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus. So the whole thing was a massive setup from start to finish. Notice they only brought the woman. I mean, really, from what I know about adultery, which is very little and from nothing in experience, I would like to say, um, that that it takes two people, right? So why did these guys just bring the woman and not the man as well? What a bunch of hypocrites. And so what we see here in Jesus is he listened to them and, and then he caused a mistrial because he needed three people to accuse her for the law to be enacted. So they were right. They quoted the scripture. They said, you know, the law commands for her to be put to death. That, that is not wrong. That's what exactly what the Hebrew law demanded. For an adulterer, she should have been put to death. And then, but Jesus caused a mistrial by his statement. He said, okay, he said, I don't disagree with you, but those of you who are without sin, and, and I've heard some people say that it is actually those of you who are without this sin, so in other words, if any of you guys have never committed adultery, then you cast the first stone. And then from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and they went away. And Jesus said, where are all your accusers? The question there, of course, is because she needed three accusers. And, uh, and she said, I have none. And Jesus said, I won't accuse you either. I won't condemn you. And then he said to her, the last thing he said to her was, now go and leave your life of sin. But Jesus empowered her to do that by not condemning her. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, we often see what people thought God was like. Now, remember, the Hebrew scriptures were written 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And so they were ancient warrior tribes. All they were doing was seeing their image of God through their culture of the day. It's no different in this day and, age, day and age. If you don't have your lenses on, the New Testament and Jesus, you will start to see God through the culture of our day. You know, God barracks for a particular football team or whatever the case might be. But they were seeing God. They were warrior tribes. And so for them, God was a warrior who was on their side, not their enemy's side, and they were allowed to slaughter their enemy. And guess what? God's told us to do that. But then we get into the New Covenant Scripture and we find out what God is really like. He's really like Jesus. And I'm so glad that God has come to give us that revelation in Jesus Christ. A lot more I could say about that. Um, James chapter 1, verses 16, 17, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, God is always good and always gives good and perfect gifts, and he does not change. There's a wonderful story in Luke 9 uh, where 
the sons of thunder, Jesus called them, James and John, the brothers that were pretty volatile with each other. Uh, they're going along, they're, they're going to a Jerusalem, sorry, they're going to a Samaritan village. And they come to this village and uh, he says to, to his disciples, go ahead and prepare a place, but they didn't receive Jesus. And uh, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, remember, the transfiguration had already taken place. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, had disappeared and they saw Jesus only. And the father said, listen to the son, not Moses, not Elijah, not the law, not the prophets, listen to the son. But James and John here are stuck in the Old Testament. So they're thinking, Elijah, fire, burn the enemies. What did Jesus do? Well, he turned around and he rebuked them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of or what attitude you're coming from. Basically saying you're coming from an Old Testament attitude. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's our New Testament lens. Isn't that wonderful? So what should a Christian view of war be? Is it ever right to fight? I think there are times where with a nation that we're a part of that uh, fighting is probably the best option. I want you to notice there, even in the in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peace makers. He didn't say blessed are the peace lovers. Uh, sometimes to make peace, then fighting may be something that you have to do, but it would be done in line with a nation. Okay. So what does the Bible teach about war? Um, Romans 13 verses one to five talks about the authority that God has placed in the governments of nations. Okay, one way God executes his justice in the earth is through the power he invests in the governing authorities of a nation. For this reason, the Christian community should not stand aloof from the broader community, but rather should seek to enter it for Christ. We should be serving in the police force, and I know Christian policemen and women, we have uh, people in our church uh, who serve in the police force, the prison service, politicians, magistrates, town councillors, arms forces, etc. Uh, we've just had a couple of our young adult guys go off, uh, I think one to the army, one to the navy, uh, which is fantastic. So they're going to be training for the armed forces over the next few months, the next few years. Um, it's only fitting that as Christians worship a God who is just, that they also be committed to see justice executed in the world in the way that God prescribes. There is no room here for individuals to take the law into their own hands as vigilantes, but rather to cooperate with the state and its officials uh, in, um, in fighting uh, if we are called to do so. So I believe the Bible reveals three times when it is right to fight and when uh, war is justified. And I don't really have a whole lot of time left to go into a lot of detail here, but the three ways are this. Number one, in order to preserve freedom. And so you have to decide what's dying for uh, when it comes to freedom. If you don't know what's worth dying for, you don't know what's worth living for. There are some things that are worse than war. Uh, many times in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, God told the Israelites to actually go and liberate a certain people group. 
And so in that case, they needed to fight to liberate people. And we certainly see that uh, happening in the world around us. Uh, personally, my heart has been going out to the people of Myanmar, uh, and I've been praying for the people of Myanmar. And uh, I'm not saying that other nations should fight um, to bring peace there, but I think other nations need to do all that we possibly can uh, in the power that we have as various nations to put as much pressure uh, on that coup and uh, upon the army as possible to uh, see the people of Myanmar liberated. And so the first reason to fight is in order to preserve freedom. The second one is in order to defend innocent people. Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 15, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. And so Christians are not just interested in peace. We want peace, but we want peace with justice. Uh, peace at any price is not peace. Peace at any price is appeasement. And so God says that he is not only a God of peace, but he's also a God of justice and things should be done right. So uh, somebody said that um, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And so sometimes we need to do something in order for justice um, to be brought about in the world. John Stuart Mill said this, a man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares about more than his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free. And the third time when I believe it's right to fight is in order to spread, stop the spread of evil, in order to stop the spread of evil. The Bible makes it very clear that God has authorised the government to enforce the law and punish offenders. As I mentioned before in Romans 13, particularly verse 4, government is there to serve God for your benefit. If you break the law, however, you may well have fear. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of justice to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Uh, someone may ask, doesn't the sixth commandment say you shall not kill? And uh, my answer to that is no, it doesn't. It says you shall not murder. Uh, the word's used 47 times in the Bible and it always means murder. Is there a difference between killing and murder? Absolutely there is. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, all killing is no more murder than all sexual intercourse is adultery. There is a difference. When is it right to bring about justice, to preserve freedom, and to reduce evil in the world? I should just say here in conclusion that war is not God's ideal, but we live in a far from ideal world. God's eternal kingdom will only be inhabited by righteous people, and so there will be no more need for war. As uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4 says, and these words are actually uh, quoted on the wall, I believe, as you go into the United Nations. It says, he will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will bring ultimate peace uh, into the world when he establishes king, his kingdom and his reign upon the earth. In the meantime, in this day and age, we need to, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should be praying for, working for, and fighting for peace as a community of God's people. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. 
Digging Deeper is a weekly podcast that is uploaded every Wednesday. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. Next week, Pastor Rob will be digging deeper into eternal punishment, answering questions about purgatory, annihilation, hell and universalism. Is hell forever? We hope you can join us then.